Okay, can you try speaking, Emily? Yep, can you hear me? Yep, excellent. Okay, all right. Um, does is is Hugh all good to go as well? Yes, he is. Okay, bro. All right, gonna start um, in five, four, three, two, one. Live from London. This is The Late Show with Emily Follow Run Show on Teachers Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone. The time is 8pm on Monday, the 13th of December. You are listening to me, Emily Follow Run Show on Teacher Talk Radio. And today I will be joined by a very special guest, Hugh Richards, and we'll be discussing all things middle leadership. So if you are an aspiring middle leader live from london this is the late show with emily follow run show on teachers talk radio tune in live on the podbean app or desktop player just head over to www.podbean.com slash lsw slash tt radio or search teachers talk radio follow the hashtag tt radio Hello, 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 and welcome, everyone. As I said before, today I've got Hugh Richards, and um, we are going to discuss all things middle leadership. So if you're an aspiring middle leader, or if you are a current middle leader looking to refine your practice, please do, um, you know, join, join, because this is going to be a superb show you need a notebook next to you you need a pen because there's no like when Hugh speaks you can't not write or jot things down like he's like the beacon of wisdom in education not just in the field of history but just in order to make things really practical and you know sometimes when we look at things um on Twitter, we feel like, oh, my days, how can I aspire to do that? But what Hugh really does is he makes things realistic and um, and doable, if that makes sense. So please do, um, you know, have a note pen and a notepad and get writing. Um, as most of you have seen on um, Twitter, I'm stuck at home because um, I've tested positive which is upsetting because I um, obviously want to be in school with students but also I've got mocks to mark and there's no way I'm marking those mocks during my hard and Christmas holiday Um, so yeah I'm really anxious in terms of how I'm going to get that um, done but I feel perfectly fine now that's why I'm able to do the show The, the first two days I would say was really rough um however now um I just feel completely normal so maybe I think everybody um deals with covid differently so um yeah that that, that that's me so as going back to the show and the theme of the show please do um send in your questions better still please do um call in to ask Hugh questions to pose your scenario and I do have Hugh with me right now hi Hugh how are you Hello, I'm all right. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, yeah, I can hear you perfectly. Um, so how's your Monday been? Uh, it's been a, <laughs> it's been a <laughs> busy one, actually. I've, um, I've been, well, I, I had lessons this morning and then I went to university this afternoon oh, to wow. lecture on the PGC programme. And then I went back to school 
to help lead a, a well-being and workload group which we're oh, doing okay. some work on email traffic in school at the moment so we've just oh, wow. finalized an email policy yeah. and then came home uh, two-year-old for a couple hours two-year-old's gone to bed and now I'm chatting to you so it's been <laughs> <laughs> it's been yeah a hectic yeah. but at least very productive day yeah, it's been, how yeah. are you? You so you, I didn't hadn't realised you, you tested positive. You're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm good, and the workaholic in me just doesn't want to rest. So I'm literally so today. I've just spent the day building the scheme of work for migration because we swapped crime because we're on Edexcel, so we swapped our crime punishment thematic studies with migration. So that's been good fun, and tried to do a bit of work here and there, but got distracted. But that's literally the majority of what I've done in terms of my day so your day sounds far more productive than mine um so, <laughs> oh, you so, shouldn't yeah. be productive you should be resting Definitely. oh i know it's just um i'm sick and tired of resting yeah <laughs> uh, i, I did for that. the last two three days and the yep. first two days was really rough but i feel so much better now um so for those that don't know you who would you be able to um you know give an introduction in terms of who you are um and also in terms of um like um, your career journey so how long you've been teaching um, and your progression from you know NQT and so on sure so I started out um, in I guess 2009 my third year of uni I joined a uni program called um, York Students in Schools and we went to schools across you volunteer you want to go to schools across the city and it started with a man called Gareth Davis and I don't know where Gareth Davis is now he used to be a deputy head at the Joseph Roundtree School, which is next door to my school. But I don't, mm-hmm. he's vanished off my radar a bit, and I wish I could track him down. But he completely inspired me to become a teacher. Um, he was working in a sort of very standard comprehensive setting, but doing absolutely incredible things with students. And they were, they were just completely sort of, they found him totally engaging and totally captivating. Mm-hmm. And I thought, this, this guy's got it. So he let me teach a little bit. I can still remember teaching about, the class system. He was teaching about War of the Worlds and um, oh no, sorry, he was talking about the Time Machine. Sorry, a different piece of sci-fi. Um, and he was talking about how you have different classes and they go down different routes in that in that piece of um, that that piece of literature. And he just wanted me to teach a little bit about the Victorian class system. And I just did that, yeah. and actually, I just got bitten by the bug. So I went <laughs> straight to my PGC from university. Yeah. And then I really struggled to get a job. Actually, I spent. Oh, I did, I think, eight interviews in my PGCE year. And they all went wrong, apart from the last one, where I was offered a half history, half geography job at a pretty difficult, comprehensive north of Leeds. Um, And, yeah, it it went from there, really. And I I spent three years there being just a teacher of humanities. And I then had, I then, I was a staff governor there, and things things got very difficult with the governing body because we essentially um, the head teacher had to go, so we were. It was a difficult time to be a staff governor, actually. Uh, and at that point, I parachuted myself out of there and into a, a job at Huntington. Oh um, wow! So you've been there for quite some time, then. Yeah, I've been there for seven years, and I've done. It's suited me really well, actually. I've really liked it. It's a proper comprehensive school. We've got people from across the kind of social backgrounds. It's not especially kind of. Um, it hasn't got many minorities. It's not particularly diverse in that respect, but it, it has got a, a lot of, of very impoverished students yeah. um, and some some very privileged ones as well. And, and it's, it's quite nice to work with that mix. 
And I did yeah, so I did I was subject leader of general studies for a while. I was assistant subject leader of history. I did a year maternity cover for a deputy head. That was my fourth year oh, wow. of teaching. That was probably a mistake. Um, and then I did a few years as a governor at a local primary school. I, I've been subject leader of history for six years now, no, five wow. years now. And yeah, I'm now finding still think, finding things to do. So I'm on that wellbeing and workload team. And then I've just done loads of bits on the side. So like bits for the HA, bits for SHP, yeah. TM icons, PGCE, York networks. I've done a bit of a project in the first lockdown that was called the Curricularium, which I massively enjoyed. That was with yeah, Bailey Watson. That. Yeah, that was brilliant, and that kind of led to the subject leader program that I'm now kind of helping to steer with my my wonderful team of people. Um, and yeah, then bits of like school to school direct CPD for history and, and curriculum work, and just this and that really. But it's been quite nice to keep all that sort of stuff ticking alongside my kind of teaching role. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah. So that's kind of me. Thank you. Yeah, because you are like the beacon of thought when it comes to curriculum, but also from the clip curricularium um i think it was last summer or maybe two summers ago it's all mud, muddling up now yeah. Um, um yeah you've it's about how you know as middle leaders we can ensure as well how the, that the curriculum intent really truly lands practically in the classroom which i really liked about um you know your talk um which i'm gonna talk more about and um for those that don't know you know Hugh is also um he did mention it before that he contributes heavily to the secondary committee in terms of the historical association and he um you know you lead a course um do you want to explain more about the course that you lead on sure. the HA so it came out of the curricularium really and we realized that there's an opportunity um I don't think anyone would ever really travel distance and we wouldn't ever do a residential course for subject leadership but we realised with the with the Zoom revolution that there was an opportunity and the recorded presentation revolution, there was an opportunity to actually build networks of subject leaders across the country. Because in it, as a subject leader, you're kind of expected to to be the sort of leader for that subject in your school and know yeah. what you're doing. But you're it's quite an isolating job in lots of respects because you're kind of expected to know how to do it. But you've probably been promoted to that role because you're a very good teacher of that subject. Yeah. So. It's quite a tricky one to learn that the actual nuts and bolts of leadership. A lot of subject leaders have really good ideas about curriculum and really good understanding of assessment, but they have to learn on the job really about how to how to be a, a subject leader. So we mm-hmm. set up this program. We recorded. I've got an amazing team of people. I've got Kat Priggs. I've got David Hibbert, Ruth Lingard, Sharon Ananakwa, and I've got um, Elizabeth Carr as well. Sorry, Elizabeth, I didn't yes. forget you. Uh, and they're. <laughs> And absolutely, I've learned so much from these subject leaders. All of them are current heads of departments, so they're all living the kind of realities of day-to-day. And in the last couple of years, obviously, that's been quite a change in reality. Yeah. Um, Kat herself is a, has got loads of experience as a, as a subject leader, but in lots of different schools, but is now an assistant head. Uh, but she's hugely involved in subject leadership still, so completely lots, lots from all of them. I've learned a massive amount. And we basically do, there's 12 hours of recorded um presentations that are chunked down into 15 minute chunks um, and split into kind of 12 units and that includes everything from how to lead change to how to manage a history curriculum to how to develop history teachers to how to deal with Ofsted senior leaders and all the kind of things we have to manage upwards um, yeah. and we had a we had a for a 45 minute interview with Tim Jenner, the subject leader of uh, So we've got 
kind of history specific focus there about how that how that um how that all looks for a subject leader and yeah then we do us basically the course runs where you get the you and then we kind of kind of credit you as a ha subject leader but you also, alongside all that, there's a WhatsApp group for each cohort. So there's 60 or so getting a sense of what's going on. I'm just getting a message. I'm cutting out a bit. Oh, yeah, I can still hear you. Thank you. Okay, so um, he's probably going to come back soon. But so far from what we heard is that, you know, who leads the course of the HA um, which it, which I'm going to sign up to um, in the next financial year because I've maxed out my departmental budget right now. But there's been tremendous feedback in terms of this subject-specific um, leadership course for history uh, practitioners on Twitter. So please do look through Twitter and find out um, the feedback. Hello, can you hear me now? Oh, yeah, I can hear you now. Just telling everyone to look through Twitter for feedback in terms of the comments that those that have been on the course um, have found it. Can you now hear me? Am I back? Yeah, in? yeah, I can hear you. Okay, yeah. that might be better. Sorry, I'm, <laughs> I'm having some issues with my phone apparently. Oh, no, 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 that's fine. Um, cool. <laughs> so, yeah, so it's basically a, a, trying to build support networks as well as the development program itself. Um, mm. And it seems to be going well. Yeah, pretty pleased. Right. Thanks, you. Thanks, you. Um, so, yeah, as I said before, this is, although, you know, who leads a course for middle leaders um, that is very history specific, um, this, you know, this show is aimed for all subjects and phases. So even if you are a middle leader at primary school, there's, I know, I'm guaranteed, I, I just know, you know, because who's like the beacon of all wisdom, um, but you'll be able to take things and ensure that you can use them in your own setting. So whatever subject or phase you are, there's going to be um, practical advice um, for all. Um, so I'm just going to go straight to the question. So my first question is, um, how can we develop others within our department? Which is an amazing question, because <laughs> basically one of the things you learn as a, as a subject lead, and as you say, this applies to any phase or any, uh, any subject is that you can't teach every lesson yourself so yeah. you have to make sure that your teachers are as good as you can make them and yeah. I, I mean the first thing to do is there's, there's practical things about time so you need to free up as much of your department meeting time as possible it has to be spent on actively improving and developing your team so you need to clear away the clutter from those department meetings you need they need to not mm. be complaining about you know, yesterday's year nines, they have yeah. to be dealing with, you need to find avenues for, they do need to talk to you about that because that's really important for people's well-being is to, is to have that avenue to offload and, and, and highlight problems. But those should be happening in kind of regular little casual conversations around the place. And meeting yeah. time should be pretty kind of sacred for CPD and curriculum development and, and assessment development, which is all about mm. sort of really important forms of CPD. So yeah. the first thing is find some time and, find other ways to do the admin stuff so stick a whiteboard up in the office it's my favorite tip so mm. get a whiteboard in the department office stick that on the wall do all your admin via that and email and then you free up your department time to develop your team 
But yeah. there's lots of different ways this happens, isn't there? Because if I've got assistant subject leader, for example, and my last assistant subject leader was was a great history, is still a great history teacher, but was wanting to move towards pastoral leadership, really. So yeah. she did more work with kind of following up on behaviour with the department. So following up oh, as doing the subject leadership good, support yeah. behaviour and doing bits with detentions and doing bits with supporting teachers who had classes that were causing them problems and 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 I did more of the curriculum side of things and she did kind of the yeah. operational day-to-day stuff I mean she worked really hard on the key stationary curriculum which she had oversight of but she also had this kind of she was learning about the operational side of leadership and, and lots of student facing work um and that's and she's now head of year seven at our place so she's yeah. she's kind of used that assistant subject leader role to develop her, her pastoral leadership skills uh, but now I've got a new assistant subject leader who's absolutely brilliant and is a is a curriculum thinker. Like it, her, she, she's looking to go down the academic route primarily. I think uh, that yeah. might be towards Senko or that might be towards um, history subject leader. So we're working really hard on on curriculum leadership side of things, and I'm doing, you know, I'm sure I'm sharing with her the detention and the removal rotor side of things and all of that because actually that means that she can that she can develop her interests. So there's lots to be done about yeah. talking to, to people within your department and finding out what it is they want to develop. And that that is a really powerful way to foster a culture of improvement in your department wow. because you've got the buy-in from the people involved. Now, mm. the big thing for me about developing others is, is Mary Meyer phrase. In fact, it's the title of a, a brilliant book by Mary Meyer called High Challenge, Low Threat. Yeah. Right. So you challenge them, you work them hard, you, you you push on their skills and knowledge and understanding, but you do it in the least threatening context you possibly can manage. Yeah. So develop so you know, any kind of learning walk or work scrutiny needs to be developmental, it needs to be aimed completely and transparently at developing yeah. the team. Right. Yeah. So you've got to uh, and, and I think something that we don't often do as subject leaders is invite other members of our team to come and do a learning walk or a book scrutiny of our work um, yeah. and kind of have a conversation about, you know, and pairing up perhaps is a really nice way to do it. So you look at each other's, but that happens kind of horizontally across the department. It doesn't have to be the subject leader going into each lesson in turn and kind of officially quality assuring it. Um, so that kind of thing is going on. And then I, th- I think probably the, the biggest tip in terms of how you would and I think, I think we might be talking about, I'm sure we'll talk about CPD further down the, the list, but actually yeah. focusing on on one thing that you want yeah. the department to work on. Because there's actually, if you add up all the department time you have across a year, you might have loads, you might have not very much at all. But if you try and introduce something new each session rather than going back to and working on the same thing, you, you can't meaningfully develop um, oh, that's a good point. Yeah. any members of your department. So keeping a focus on a narrow a range of things and and putting the challenge in there, expecting them to do it, but realizing that because they, again, if, if you're if you keep it narrow, then they understand that you're not asking for too many things, and you've selected something powerful and important to develop. Yeah. And again, that buy-in comes because you're not sort of machine gunning a dozen things at them all the time to improve, but you're kind of going, no, this is this is our first and biggest focus this year, um, yeah, or for the next two years even. But but kind of that level of, of precision helps convince yeah. them. And how for those that are completely, you know, new or aspiring to be middle leaders, how could one identify what needs to be the, improved within the department? 
Okay, so yeah, choosing your one thing or choosing your two things, yeah. that is tricky. And if you are looking at what it is you want to develop, there's there's various ways you can do that. You can talk to, if you're, if, if you're an aspiring subject leader, and I'm thinking yeah. primarily in the secondary context here because my primary context knowledge is limited, but <laughs> might well work. But I, you kind of talk to the existing leadership in that subject or yeah. the existing senior leadership, line manager, whoever that is. And you can kind of say to them, right, what, what's your perceptions of what needs to change? But you can also talk to a non-specialist or you could talk to someone who's the least confident in that subject and go, well, how are you feeling? And as you start to, and you can talk to students and you can have a look at the books and you can have a look at the curriculum. And yeah. in my experience, if you start looking at those things, there's a fantastic blog that Rich Kennett wrote and I added a few questions to on, on a blog called One Big History Department where there's loads of questions for reviewing a curriculum. And if you start to ask those sorts of questions, then you can really quickly hone in on something you want to work on yeah but primarily i think it is driven by the curriculum we teach and if you've got a really good curriculum on paper but it's not landing in the classroom then your focus needs to be on that pedagogy and and the resources yeah. and the training for those that team if you if you're feeling like actually what you've planned to teach is being taught very well but it doesn't quite do what you want it to do then it's a curriculum question and you go back to developing that but i think by developing curriculum and then and, and which is inherently linked to pedagogy because you've got, it's got to land in the classroom rather than just be a piece of paper. Mm -hmm. if, if you're looking to, to see how well your curriculum is landing, fundamentally, you'll get quite quickly to an area of development. So in our case, it was, a, it was actually after lockdowns, we realised that the students weren't too bad with their knowledge because they'd read a lot and, and copied a lot, but their independent writing, where they were writing original phrases and sentences and paragraphs, yeah. wasn't that strong. And so that quite quickly emerged as as an issue that the team highlighted that I was picking up in my books, but our, we were teaching them the same curriculum as we had before COVID, but it, it, they weren't, they weren't expressing it very clearly in their written. So yeah. written work at the end. So it was a case of let's do that, but it is a case of, of digging around a little bit and, and talking to different people and seeing what their perceptions are of the position of, of the department. But there might also be, might also be the staff profile. Have you got really experienced members of staff who perhaps have other leadership roles? What is it that they might need to work on? What's what's new in your subject that you think they need to develop? Or you might have very inexperienced members of staff, and actually you might go, no, we need to do, we need to sort of embed and, and sort of layer up some of the kind of basics that I want to see as part of their pedagogy because I know the curriculum's good, but it just needs to land a bit better. Those mm -hmm. kinds of things. I think if you think about those kind of issues you will get to a, a priority um, but yeah that. ask questions start with your curriculum and you'll probably get to an answer pretty quickly mm -hmm. oh, i love that i'm just literally writing all of this down so <laughs> that's why there's a, a bit of a um silence thank you right. as i said before to the others um listening please do call in if you've got any questions pose your scenarios or use the chat to um you know ask any questions so my third question is um how do you manage others you know that also that have extra responsibility so you did mention you know you've got somebody in your department that um is the head of year seven so in my department for example i've got um two heads of years one um slt and the other two are relatively new so one's in 
um, ECT and the other one's about it's like an RQT so for variety of experiences um so yeah how would you manage those that have extra responsibilities in your department sure now I I, I can raise you I've got two heads of year two SLT who are both pastoral SLT um wow. and I've got my assistant subject leader ahead of politics um so I've got four pastoral leaders two heads of two two curricular TLRs and myself and that's the whole department so everyone's got a TLR and so all that thing I was talking about about trying to develop the leadership potential in your team I mean I'm not taking credit for it because they're incredible human beings but you do often end up with history teachers um, I find a lot of that time in, in our kind of departments but you do also find it across across departments in, in different schools um, where yeah they've got loads of other responsibilities and it is really hard because you want to push on your subject. You want to push on your priorities, but the reality is they have got a huge demand on their time. And actually, Mm -hmm. certainly in my secondary context, what is good for the school ecosystem is for those four pastoral leaders to be as able to teach their history with as little kind of unnecessary history load because fundamentally i need we need as a whole school community we need the pastoral leadership to work so they me putting too much demand on them isn't actually good for the system as a whole and that's a bit frustrating because it feels like i want to do more and more and more stuff but i've got very limited options yeah i think the main thing to consider when you're managing people with other responsibilities is trust right yeah there's a good chance they were given that job because they're flipping good at their job so true you you just need to trust them, right? And because if they've been good at their previous job, there's a good chance, unless they're completely overwhelmed with their new workload, there's a good chance that that attitude to their work, that, that those kind of guiding principles, those founding work ethics are still going to be present in them as a human being. So yeah. if you trust them and go, you know what? Yeah, they're doing this extra job, but... I'm, I'm expe- I would imagine they will still be in the classroom nailing those lessons. Yeah, I might not see them at break times. I think they might be on duty or they might be in their office seeing students. You know, I might not see them in form time. I might not see them around the edges of those lessons very much because they're, they're stretched to capacity. But if I walk into those lessons, I bet I will still see a flipping good teacher doing their very, very best work because yeah. of who they are. And that's part of the reason why they've got those positions. It's not always true, but... In my experience, it, there's a good deal of, of, of truth in, in the fact that you can sort of trust them. That's um, a good point. You, and, and if their workload is overwhelming, it is, a, it is a good way into it. And there have been times where I have said, well, actually, you know what, this little thing we should be working on a bit. Like learning walks have shown up some bits and bobs that have needed fixing. Um, and they've often gone, oh, yeah, but I'm just, I've got no time. And I'm like, I do understand that. But on this particular issue, I think we need to fix so very rarely, but now and again, there'll be something where I'll go, you know what, team, let's just let's just tidy up this thing. Um, a classic example might be something like uh, lesson starts. My team are always on time for their lessons, um, but it's easy to see how a pastoral leader, you know, might get caught up crossing a playground towards their lesson or oh, yeah, might have to stop yeah. and intervene in something that, you know, you, you, you can see how they're going to potentially that might become an issue. Um, so I'm just keeping an eye on that. But as I say, my team are great, but I, that's the kind of example where you can actually go, you know what, this does need to happen. Yeah. And 
sometimes there are little there are little warning signs and actually this person is starting to be overwhelmed by their workload and and you can look at that as a subject leader and see what's going on but also you might encourage them to talk to their pastoral line management or, or you might encourage them or you might yourself talk to your line manager and go I'm concerned about this person mm. just being swamped and actually can we do more to help them or can we change their responsibility somehow but yeah the basics are like being organized so a whiteboard in the office a mail out each week going this is what's going to happen i think that helps them a lot i think being organized with with getting planning ahead to help them with their own work stream yeah. so avoiding last minute requests you know and if you are sympathetic and flexible where you can afford to be then when you hold the line on particular issues they don't mind because because actually they they know you understand their their job if you take the view of oh i'm going to carve out the history or the sorry i keep saying history i'm going to yeah. carve out the subject area f- you know f- i'm going to make sure they're doing that to the to the letter uh on everything then they'll very quickly begin to sort of be quite disenchanted with that whereas if you go you know what i get that this and that fine you you know i'm not going to ask you to do masses of work between our department meetings on the project mm-hmm. we're working on i'll find you time in those meetings to do your cpd yeah. And then when so, there is an issue, yeah. you can hold the line because they know that you, you're not doing it for the hell of it. You're doing it because you found an issue that you, you sort of yeah. need to hold the line on. Sharing resources, centralizing printing, these kind of things are really powerful for them. Anything that makes their work time more efficient, um, all of that's really helpful. Mm-hmm. But yeah, well, I like I, talking to yeah. line management is, is the way to get advice because it's quite context specific. And if you have a concern about a member of your team, then getting advice from somebody before you take action is always my my kind of top tip that's really good that's really helpful especially in terms of making their workload you know easier so that they can do do the two thank you very much for that and um yeah so we're gonna have a quick break in terms of um an ad break and then we will resume with more questions are you looking to take your phonics practice forward then Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised is the programme for you. Created by two schools with an excellent track record in phonics, Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised will help all children become readers and ensure no child is left behind. The programme offers complete support for your phonics teaching, alongside classroom resources and fully decodable readers from Collins Big Cats. To find out more, follow at Letters Sounds on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram or join a free briefing by visiting littlewondelettersandsounds.org.uk. Teachers Talk Radio is delighted to support Winston's Wish, the UK's childhood bereavement charity. Winston's Wish supports children and their families after the death of a parent or sibling. They provide emotional and practical bereavement support. Expert teams also provide online resources specialist publications and training for professionals. Find out more about Winston's Wish and pledge your support at www.winstonswish.org. And welcome back. So, so far we have been, I've, I have been talking to Hugh about all things middle leadership and he's answered the following questions in terms of developing others and managing um, others in other department that do have extra responsibility to ensure that you know their workload isn't piling up so um, welcome back Hugh my next question is how do you make the most of department time because 
you know, you, you briefly you briefly did touch on utilizing department time to develop others in a form of CPD. So if you could, you know, go deeper into that, that would be great. Thank you. And what does how does a department time or departmental meeting in in terms of your context looks look look yeah looks like as well? So yeah, well, at our place we have fortnightly meetings where we we bundle together all of the meeting time available into an hour a fortnight and then we shorten our our Mondays every other Monday we take 10 minutes off each lesson and 10 minutes off lunchtime to buy ourselves another hour so we have these kind of two hour dollops of time every every other Monday I mean Huntington's always been a place that's kind of put a lot of emphasis on CPD and subject specific CPD so as subject leader I get I get 80% of those Mondays um, to myself to plan to, to develop my team and I get about 80% of the time on, on the training days as well in departments working on this sort of stuff. So I, I, th- I'm, I think I'm quite privileged in that sense. I get a lot of, a lot of department time. But I, I fundamentally believe that however much time you have as a, as a team on your, on your subject or in, in your phase, then actually, you know, you, you, the principles remain the same. So I think the big thing is, is to try and focus on the things that you need everybody there for, right? So make yeah. it as purposeful as you can. Ask yourself if you put an agenda together, do I need everybody in the room for this? If not, can I leave it to the end and let two of the group go off and do something else? Yeah. Or can I do it in a smaller meeting some other way? Or, you know, am I able to have conversations in, you know, in, in here and there to, to, to deal with an issue? Uh, is it an email, in fact, or is it a, a little admin task I can do myself? And then I think, if you focus on that, those things that you need everybody there for, like moderating work, moderating feedback, marking of, of exam work, for example, you do need everybody there to do. Um, if you if you then have stuff that only applies to half your team, for example, if only half the team teach an A-level course, yeah. then you definitely should be releasing other people to do other things. And, yeah. and that's critical. Really? I think choosing something that that you're going to work on across a year or even over two years and kind of make it iterative. So make it something that's connected over time and you kind of choosing fewer things and doing the better as we've kind of already touched on. That's what really, So for example, we're working on writing, as I've said, that's something we're going to keep coming back to. And as we're doing new bits of curriculum design, I'm wanting to see how the new writing ideas are being fed into that. And then once I'll start to see those writing ideas spread through other lessons. I think it's crucial to see time I mean, how we perceive time in schools, I think, isn't isn't very good quite a lot of the time. I think we need to see time strategically. So if you add up the time you have over a whole year, how much have you got? Let's say you've got 10 hours together as a team. I, are there going to be times in that year where you might have to do some moderation work or some book review work or whatever it is because you've got a, a policy that says you have to do that? You can discount them and go, yep, we'll set them aside for that often valuable um cpd but then what have i got left and what am i what, so i've got set i've got seven hours left what am i going to yeah. do with that time over the year what can i do in seven hours of, of my whole team right so if i've Sorry got about that, my right. if i've got <laughs> i don't know five team members and i've got seven hours i've kind of got 35 hours to play with in some respects sometimes they'll all be done on the same thing because we want to bring the team together and work on it but sometimes i can split them off Right. So sometimes I can think, you know what, I'm going to, 
you know, I'm going to start by doing three sessions where we all work together on the same thing. So this year, for example, yeah. I've been doing, we've been working on slavery and empire. And, yeah. and, and what I've been doing is using it as an example of curriculum design. So everyone's curriculum design and curricular thinking skills have gone up a notch because I, I gave them three sessions to begin with, one on a training day and two after schools, where I explained to them, I gave, I gave a model of, of how I'd planned the unit and then wow. said, to them, right, try some of this. And now I've split them up. One team is my assistant subject leader um, is doing fantastic work with her team planning new slavery units. Um, and then I've, I've got my team is working on the empire issues. So we kind of, we've almost doubled our time because we're working parallel to each other. And then yeah. myself and Emily, my assistant subject leader, we, we touch base with each other and see how we're getting on and making sure it all joins up together. But the actual meeting time, is, that's a bit like The Apprentice, right? So yeah. you split into sub-teams, you crack on with stuff, and you come back together. We do it better than The Apprentice, I like to think. But, <laughs> you know, you've got that sort, of, that sort of mentality of actually let's split the team and, and crack on with different things. And I think there is practical strategies. I think having timed agendas, if you have got a 10-minute admin job to get out of the way first that you just have to talk to everybody about, then on the agenda, set it for the first 10 minutes of the meeting and say, mm. by, you know, we start at half past, by 22, we're moving on from this chat. I'm not having yeah. a, a half hour rant about stuff. I'm not having grumbles and sort of speculative generalized chat. We're dealing with it and we're moving on. There's other things you can do. Like you could, if you've got a, a new policy to write, write it as a subject leader and then take it to the team for approval. If yeah, you've got a vision statement like to produce, write, draft it and take it to the team. That's got all kinds of benefits, not least that you get about 80% of what you want, but everybody is kind of buying into that and giving and putting their thoughts in and editing, adapting. But you also, it's much more efficient than starting with a blank piece of paper and going, right, what do we want to do? Yeah, that's so, a good point. So, you know, bringing something with you to bash about is a much more efficient use of time than starting with blank paper. And, and that's the kind of thing where, actually, you've got to think about the time itself over the course of a year. How much have I got? What am I going to do with it? Where do I have to concede time to, to work like moderating exams? And where can I crack on with my priorities? Um, and you quite quickly get to quite a useful rhythm that mm. doesn't involve admin, that doesn't involve things that can be done outside of the meeting. And actually stuff can get done. Yeah, we like that. Thank you. That's a really good, um, and I really like that practical tip in terms of, you know, bring something concrete and then ideas can be thrown about in the meeting instead of bringing a blank piece of paper. Thanks, Hugh. Uh, just a reminder, bonus listening, please do call in or um, post questions in the chat. Um, whilst we have Hugh here live, it would be great um, if you've got any scenarios and so on. Um, so the big question, um, especially due to the context of, you know, the new Ofsted framework, which is great to put, you know, in terms of putting curriculum back um, on the map and making it a priority, um, as curriculum leaders, how can we ensure that the curriculum um, truly lands in every single classroom? Yeah, now, this is the absolute kind of, that's the, that's the jackpot, isn't it? If you can yeah. get your curriculum land, it's so hard to achieve. Um, especially, well, I think it's harder in some subjects than others, um, but I don't really know that for sure. So, but I would imagine most subjects, because of the nature of human beings, if you've got the bigger your team of people, 
the less likely you are to have complete consistency. I don't, but I'm not even sure that consistency is a desirable thing. Um, That's a really good point. I've never thought of it on that, that way. I think, I think a core range of things that everybody teaches so that if you think uh, Josh Valance came, has this lovely, I think it was Josh Valance originally, someone else, there's someone else who I'm not referencing here, I'm very conscious of that. Um, Josh <laughs> came up with this idea of curriculum as a box set. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think it was someone, it was in the book called The Curriculum by Research Ed. Right. It was Ben somebody, I think. Um, I don't, oh, I forgot. Yeah, anyway, this idea of curriculum as a box set. If yeah. I'm going to lift a story back to the surface later on, let's say in year nine, I'm going to reference something they did in year eight. I'm going to want to know, I'm going to be, want to be confident that the core threads of that story have been taught in year eight. But I'm not too worried if that has been embellished in different ways by teachers based on the anecdotes they know and their own particular flair and interest and, and knowledge. As yeah. long as the core is agreed upon and, and everybody can confidently reference back to stuff, then actually I, I think consistently you can spend a lot of time trying to get total consistency that actually is, is not just a waste of time because it's just not going to happen, but it's actually detrimental to the brilliance of teachers, right? So that, that thing where I can't imagine what it must be like to want to teach something in a lesson but feel you can't because it's not yeah. on the core resources. Yeah. And, and, and think, oh, I could inspire this group of students in front of me in the moment. I could read them this or I could show them that or I could play them this particular brilliant piece of theatre, right? And and you you could and, and the idea that you would have to go, oh, I shouldn't do that because the set resources of the other wow. other things. Yeah. But they've been designed by somebody else. And that somebody else might be delivering the exact set resources to an unbelievable degree because it's 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 tailored to them and their interests and knowledge. Yeah. So consistency I think reduces quality often. Wow. And wow. you've just got to kind of get that core stuff right. Right? Wow. What's the current unit going to... You can specify this. What's the current unit going to cover? What previous knowledge does it build upon? And what's it going to lead to? So everybody understands the curricular function of something. Mm. Um, like we do the Russian Revolution in year nine. It's really important that they understand what communism is. That's why we do the Russian Revolution. I want them to understand what communism is. You know, within the Russian Revolution. I also want them to understand, you know, the chaos and death that follows the Russian Revolution is a big reason for the Western fear of communism in the rest of the 20th century it explains the Cold War and explains, yeah. you know, Your the rise of... stage five unit as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's, they're going to trip up over it somewhere. You know, communism is going to make yeah. a reappearance if they're doing any modern history. So they need to have a good grasp of that concept. They do animal farm in English at our place about half a term after they do the Russian Revolution with us. So that's all really useful cross-curricular sort of connection. But basically, if they get communism and they get the Russian Revolution, and they get the chaos and death, within that, if someone wants to tell the story of, you know, the, the, the first Russian Revolution where you have the, you know, all of the drama around the, the uprisings in the street and the Women's March and all of this sort of stuff, or if someone would prefer to, to focus a bit more on the second one, or if someone wants to talk more about Rasputin as a fascinating character because they've got a bit of knowledge about that, right? Well, they've heard a podcast the previous week about Rasputin. They go, oh, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do 10 minutes on Rasputin. Fine. I don't have a problem with that as long as I can confidently in that, I can confidently in year 10 or 11 refer back to it and say, right, you know what communism is? And they go, yep, got that. Yeah, well. 
And, and that's all I need. So, and if teachers are good curricular thinkers, if you teach them how the curriculum slots together, right, like we're doing this year with Empire and Slavery, we're taking a load of time to think really hard about how two units or four units as it is slots into our curriculum. And, yeah. and the more aware they are of this invisible mesh of connections and links that sits across yeah. a curriculum, the better they are going to be at it. So you can train your team up to do that sort of stuff. But they get more tuned into issues of like sequencing and coherence. But to, to over-specify, I think, I think the way to get a curriculum to land in the classroom is to not specify too much. It's yeah. to really nail down that core stuff that you want to land and everybody can straightforwardly do. And then allow a bit of, I mean, by all means, provide some suggestions on what they could do and how, you know, if people don't have any expertise, give them enough to teach. Yeah. But actually just say, yeah, you know what? We have, in fact, in our World War I unit, because we're all World War I nerds, after numerous battlefield trips and various family connections, <laughs> we, have a, we have a specific lesson just called Teach What You Love Time. Wow. And some of them do Gallipoli and some of them do um, all sorts of different things just because they're fascinating. You know, it adds dimensions to the war. There is a core that they do. So they do the Western Front in the early years, Western Front in the later years, the home front, this experiences of, of the Empire yeah. soldiers. And that's more or less the core of, of the World War One unit. But then they can teach. You know, I'm happy for a bit of flex there. Some people go yeah. into trench warfare in a bit more detail. Some people go for remembrance and they do a lesson on on the construct of the first world war and they talk about war poetry and how there's this kind of sort of poet poetic war almost that doesn't quite resemble what's going on all around the world you know there's all, there's so many different things that they can do because they're nerds so i leave them to it as long as they're all doing wow. the core stuff as long as the kids come away with an understanding of trench warfare and and the important social changes that happened during the first world war fine right that's not a problem i don't need everything to be landing so i think getting a course of stuff and making sure it isn't too massive and then just letting people add to that with richness and texture is the way right. forward. And I just love everything that you said there because I think when teachers have their... I always see teaching the pedagogy of it and design the curriculum as like an art. I know it sounds so geeky, but it is like an art. And when you're stripped of that autonomy, it becomes quite yeah. stifling you become um, restricted and you don't really enjoy it anymore and so what we do in my department is we have a scheme of work uh for key stage three key stage four um and we and we've got base lessons in the folder which should not be touched at all you can actually use the base lessons as they are um However, um, it's how the teacher gets to, so all of our questions are um, like a big question. So yeah. you've got the you've got the inquiry question, and then you've got the big question um, within for each lesson title. So as long as the students can literally answer that question, that title, that title question, I don't really care about how they arrive there just as long as they're able to answer that at the end of the day. Um, so I really like what you said about core knowledge. So my next question in line with that is, how do you pick out the core knowledge um, in terms of, you know, yeah, the knowledge and also the skills? How do you kind of pick out the key things that you want them to get? 
uh, Emily, sorry to interrupt, but um, I just I, I would call in if I was listening, but um, I just wanted to join the conversation if that's oh, all right no, no, with no, you. Just five, five minutes. Um, by the way, Hugh, I'm Joe. I'm producing the show today. Just um, hey, <laughs> um, so no, I just wanted to say that as um, I'm a music teacher in primary school, and just what you're saying really resonated with me because, like, I yeah. as a music teacher, I am so much of the time I'm being really spontaneous, and yeah. um, I'm trying. I'm you know, things will happen that you don't expect and they'll just, um, you'll, you'll just have to respond instantly. And uh, I guess, I guess music's one of those subjects where that, where that o- often happens. And uh, I, I could never, you know, stick to just a very <laughs> rigid plan. And I, I said that to my previous agency and they agreed with me that, you know, when teachers have stuck rigidly to the plan, the students haven't engaged as well. And, you know, yeah. at primary school level, music's yeah. got to be really inspiring. And, um, and you know, I guess at secondary, yeah, you've got stuff that you have to do and have to learn as well. But I've been my own secondary school and uh, that I was a student at, and I've played in the uh, trombone in pit bands um, for yeah. high school show, secondary school shows, and uh, that I the students they get so much more out of the things that they're engaged in and things they choose to do than they do um, than they do, you know, the most prescriptive stuff. Yeah, and I mean, music is such a good example. We've got a phenomenal music department at uh, at Huntington, and they've got an amazing website as well, Hunt School Music. Uh, they're just amazing. But they, I know, then they're directly above us in history, and it's glorious because the, they've got the most incredible curriculum plan, structured around sort of landmark pieces of music, and they use that as like uh, to, off which they, as far as I understand it, off which they hang a whole load of different. Um, sort of concepts and skills and all the rest of it and knowledge um, but they hang it around like a really broad range of, of music and uh-huh. I can completely see how because if, you, if you're trying to teach something like a chord as a concept right yeah. then there's so many ways to skin that cat right hmm. and, and they might go oh is it like this sir and you go yes it absolutely is and, and now you've said that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this because um, you get those things, don't you, where, where the same chord sequence appears in dozens of different pieces of music. Oh, yeah. Uh, Axis yeah. of Awesome four chord song. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can kind of demonstrate the concept. And they might just, they might just inspire you to remember that mid-lesson and you can kind of nail that point home. And it's totally memorable and totally brilliant in the moment. I, I, I highly respect the fact that you're close to the music department and then and you embrace the noise instead of complain <laughs> about it. I very much respect that. Thank oh, you. Yeah, we get some drums through the ceiling, but, but ultimately it's <laughs> crucial, isn't it? Like it's, it's so important to everything. And, yeah. you know, and also in, like a bit like history, you can find history in every subject. I think you can find music in, in so wow. many different subjects. Oh yeah, so, yeah, and and yeah. I mean, it's so it's so true of music. I think it's true of RPE. I think it's true of English. You know, if you're talking one particular type of poem, and and they go, I don't really get this concept, and you're like, Yeah, you do. What about if I show you this one? You have to have that freedom to engage in that learning space. Um, yeah. So I'm glad that it works. What I'm saying is kind of working at primary as well. 
Yeah. Um, well, thank you both for letting me uh, chime in there. Thank you very much. Yeah, that's great. No, 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 that was a great question. Thanks, Joe. Yeah, because I agree with what you said about that, that need for flexibility, which is so true. Um, because that's where we get the engagement, especially amongst the students and their eyes light up because they're thoroughly engaged and engrossed and fascinated. Um, yeah, so my next, my, my question leading on from that, Hugh, was um, how do you identify the core knowledge? Sure. And it, oh, it's hard, isn't it? Because particularly in a subject like ours, and I, I would imagine the same as for Joe and music, is, is that there's so many options. And yeah. there is some core knowledge that, but I think it is a case of imagining what would you want every student to know and do yeah. and understand at the key points, years 9, 11, 13, perhaps the end of key stage one and end of key stage two. What would you want them to be aware of and list that stuff? And, and actually, you'll get pretty close pretty quickly to something that works. You will always be going, oh, you know what? We should do that. Um, but and we should tweak that and add that in. And there's always going to be pressures to add different things in and take different bits out. Uh, but there's, there is a there is a really difficult balance to strike, and I think narrowing that is is really tricky. So I was saying before yeah. you should have a little narrow core contents thing, and then everybody can embellish that a little bit. Um, yeah. The more narrow you try and make it, the harder it gets. So, yeah, that's the issue. Yeah. I think probably yeah. the answer has to come from. I would say two things. I would say subject knowledge. So the yeah. better you know your subject. And I, and I don't know history very well. I think I compare my subject knowledge in history to, if you imagine a blackout blind down over a window, my history mm. knowledge is like the light that's coming in around the sides. I feel like oh, every, wow. every year of my life, I like crank the blind up another inch and a bit more floods yeah, in, but there's still massive. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and so, yeah. and as I do, as I learn more, I think, okay, well, that does belong in it. But not everything I read belongs in our curriculum. I read an amazing 400-page yeah. history of cheats at the start of the year. Oh, wow. I don't need to teach a history of cheese. Like, <laughs> it was fascinating. And the history nerd in me was totally delighted by it. But, and sometimes I drop, I've dropped three cheese facts into my scheme of work because they're just amazing. <laughs> so, you know, Cistercian monks developed Parmesan cheese in the year oh, wow. 11 to study Fountains Abbey. are like, that's really cool. Yeah, that's they... so interesting. I didn't know that. <laughs> exactly. But, but I'm not going to design a whole scheme of learning around it because it just isn't foundational knowledge they need to know. And I think you yeah. can pick out what matters and what doesn't. Um, but but the other way to do it is subject communities and talking to other subject leaders and asking for lots of examples of different <laughs> different curriculums and different ideas and going oh I like what they've done there or oh I think mm. that one's gone too far the other way I think that's not quite balanced enough for what I'm trying to achieve but I like what they've done there and just the more the more prototypes of, of a curriculum you come across the more yeah. confident I think you'll be in what you've selected. There's an argument that says you need to shape it to your context and your school a bit. That's kind of true. But I think um, Christine Council's idea that, that you want to teach them the knowledge that will lift them into wow. the conversation and will wow. enable them to... She, she talks about giving them the, the powers of the powerful. So she says, wow. you know, what you actually want is students to be able to join a conversation and not, not stumble over a word like communism. I've been talking about it a bit, but yeah. there's a good example. Um, you want them to be able to get involved in that. And so there are there is a core canon, I think, of, of important concepts in each subject. And that's yeah. really what the heart of it. Because, you know, I don't mind if they don't remember every day I ever teach them, but I, I do mind if they don't know 
what a king is, or they don't know what a parliament is, or they don't know what what the categories of economic and social and cultural and political and religious mean. You know, I, if they don't have that, then then I've missed a trick. But if they haven't remembered that, you know, a particular thing happened on a particular date, but, you know, fine, mm. that's not the end of the world. But I'd like them to have that core canon. So I would say I would say focusing on those sort of substantive concepts is the yeah. way forward. Um, but obviously there are some subjects where skills are, are critical, right? So yeah. art, I would imagine there's a certain level of like co- like confidence with being able to to use various media that, that they would want as part of that, that year nine student's repertoire, as part of that year 11 student's or that year 13 student's. Yeah. They would want them to be able to do certain things as well as know certain things. I'd, yeah, I'd like my kids to be able to write well, that's for sure. But and write good academic history. But I think yeah. the core is probably around sort of sub- substantive concepts that really, mm. if you start with that and build outwards. That's a good point. I really like that. Thank you, Hugh. So um, before, I don't know if I should, yeah, I'm going to ask one more question before we go on to um, the news break. And thanks, Joe. Um, Joe said in the chat, the history of cheese, internet meme material right there. And <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, yeah, Ella keeps barking. I'm tired of it. So she's not going to have any snacks after this. <laughs> okay. Um, my next question is, um, how can us, we as middle leaders, um, ensure um, quality, like, quality assure, I should say, teaching and learning and our curriculum as well? Um, when it comes to our department yeah uh, okay I just had a thread sorry can you ask that question again I've just had a thread of thought and lost it what's that question oh, no, 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 yeah, that's fine that's fine because um, yeah, it's been a long day um, yeah so how can we as middle leaders um, quality assure our teaching sure. and learning okay good now this is tricky because I think often what we're looking at, basically our curriculum isn't what's on the piece of paper. In my view, it's what's in our students' heads yeah. by the time they leave. And it kind of follows on from what I was just saying about what do we want them to know. The question really is, do they know it by the end? And mm, that's a good point. you see doing a work scrutiny or looking at books, I'm pretty sure that doesn't tell us much because that's a very famous list of, proxies poor proxies for learning uh, that was being kind of publicized by a guy called rob Coe, and he talks about all things that look like learning but probably aren't so people working in silence for example or a really neatly presented book of notes that doesn't actually tell you what's in the student's head so i don't think that shows us looking at books or observing 10 minutes of a lesson i don't think it shows us what's being learned um and however as middle leaders we often have to comply with school-wide policies so that's a kind of that's problem true. and you know i i'm not sure I, i'm not sure that actually you can check whether a curriculum is being followed but it doesn't necessarily tell you how much learning is going on so i mean lots wow. of open doors and quick wanders into a classroom to grab resources or books from a shelf you you get a sense of things like behavior and classroom culture across a department and that's all the quality assurance you need for that really you don't need to do a formal kind of learning walk to check that all the kids are behaving because you know as a subject leader if you're in and out of classrooms how things are going um on those kind of behavioral 
classroom culture thing. You, yeah. I mean, equally, it's got to be subject specific. So, for example, if I walked into an art room, I might only see students working on an outcome piece, but not know how much teacher feedback and live marking and live commentary has gone into that. So they, I don't know how many times they've gone, oh, you could layer on a bit more blue there because I'm looking at the finished piece. Yeah. So I've got no idea how the teaching's gone on. Um, so, but then equally, I'm sure subject leaders of art have thought this issue through. If they haven't, I would suggest their solution is the same as mine, which is basically talking to as many students as possible. So I sometimes take oh, a that, class that from a colleague for 10 minutes before lunch and just question them alone. Yeah. So just say, just verbally, or and just spend 10 minutes going, so what have you been learning about? Tell me how that links to that. What, have we talked about this person or that person? And I'm checking my core content that I'm expecting to hear about. How much can they tell me about it? Or take a sample of kids out of the room. And, and this idea I got from Rich Kennett mm. and just talk to them alone. And oh, I like you know, that. see what they've learned. And can they talk you through their book? So they yeah. can have a prompt with them. But do they understand what they've written down? So just talking to as many students as possible. It's genius from Rich. And it's just like, yeah, just talk to kids. And that's a far more useful thing than sitting watching, because I've got a brilliant team of teachers. They all, they all work really hard. They teach really well. Me sitting and watching that for 10 minutes tells me nothing. Me talking to their kids about how that's going. you know. And again, it's this high challenge, low threat thing. Yeah, I'm not, not looking to catch anyone out. I'm looking just to see how things are embedding and see where the, where the tweaks need to be made. And you know, I, want, I would want colleagues to come and, I mean, it's tricky with my lot because they are frantically busy in all of their freaks, as we've discussed. But I, and I'd never asked them to do this because actually it, it's not necessarily the best use of their time as pastoral leaders. But yeah. come and see my teaching. Come and, come and talk to my kids. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, come and talk to the students I've been working with. What can like they that. tell them? Right? Yeah. That's kind of, I think, just talk to kids. Find out what they know. It's the way forward. I'm convinced. Because mm. looking at books... And it, like students can copy stuff down really neatly and yeah, they don't understand so any true. of it that's perfectly possible so, so how true. much has gone into their long term memory how much has built a kind of effective version of the subject you're trying to teach them how do they know can they describe what certain keywords mean you know so for example we've used that music example of a chord if I say to them what, what is, what's a chord you've just said the word chord what's a chord and they go, well, it's like lots of notes at the same time. You can kind of go, yeah, that you've got the basics. I really hope that's right. I'm, just, I'm conscious that Joe <laughs> might be screaming at his mother going, you moron. Joe, is that Joe, right? Is that right? <laughs> he's gone. Oh, he's, he's away. Right. Oh, he said it's Excellent. correct. <laughs> cool. um, that's good to know. So um, that's really good. And I, I think just talking to students about, about what's going on is, is so powerful because that yeah, is where your curriculum ends that. up, is, is what they can remember at the end of it. Uh, and the PGC yeah. students I was working with today, it was really interesting. I said to them, can you draw a diagram of the medieval social and political system? And they all drew a triangle of the feudal system because it had been that ingrained in them at oh, the age wow. of 12. And they'd, wow. they'd never moved wow. past that sort of understanding of a hierarchy. They'd never moved past that. They could all name their year seven history teachers. And <laughs> these are graduates, right? These are trainee teachers. And... It's stuck with them. So those, you know, if that's what those year seven history teachers were trying to teach those students, that if they wanted to teach them that medieval social structure was a hierarchy, 
then it's worked brilliantly. It's really mm. embedded in their long-term memory because because they've got that precise, like that same knowledge. It's just Example, there, yeah. and it's there. It's there when I choose, choose to call it back to them. You know, fifteen years later or whatever it is, they they've got it, and that's amazing. Yeah. So, but talking to students, talking to year nines about what they learned in year seven is fascinating. <laughs> Because it's pretty sketchy, yeah, and that's yeah. a problem. Because they then go on to do mm. year ten medieval history, and they're a bit like, "Oh God!" So I'm sure that's the case in other subjects as well. Where actually, what do you need to keep lifting to the surface throughout P stage three? Um, mm. What do they know? Yeah. What don't they know? That's how to do it. Oh, we've got we've got a request oh, for second ads and news. Oh yeah. So, um, yeah. So we're going to pay the news now. And then um, we'll be back to explore about three, four more questions. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. Following last week's warning from Ofsted's Chief Inspector that a number of children are missing from school, England's Children's Commissioner, Rachel D'Souza, has announced that an investigation to locate the ghost children is to be launched. Some estimates have suggested that as many as 100,000 children are at risk of abuse after failing to return to school after lockdown. Rachel D'Souza said, We're hearing lots about ghost children, and I hate that term. These are real flesh and blood children. We should be able to find out where every child in England is. We should be making sure they are in school receiving high quality education. The Education Secretary, Nadim Zahawi, said his department had now set up a new attendance alliance designed to bring together the key figures able to tackle the problem of missing school children. Following Nicola Sturgeon's announcement on Friday that the Scottish Government would do all that it can to keep classrooms open, the Deputy First Minister John Swinney has stated that schools in Scotland will be the last thing we close. These announcements come in response to a rapid increase in cases of the new strain of Covid and a call from teaching union boss Larry Flanagan to close schools early for Christmas. He said the Scottish Government should consider an early Christmas closure if a fire break is needed to fend off a new wave. Nicola Sturgeon said last week that she would bust a gut to keep schools open as normal. Butterflies Nursery in Craigie, Dundee usually organises food bank donations around Christmas. But this year they have raised the bar and have launched a winter jacket drive. Manager Caroline McDermott said, It just came from us thinking, what else can we do to help? A lot of people have lost their jobs with the pandemic recently. And the last thing a lot of people think of when they're doing their budget is a warm winter coat. We printed off some laminated signs and made some flyers. 
So far, it's been quite successful. Everyone deserves a winter coat. So far, more than 50 coats have been donated by pupils, parents and staff. This has been your latest Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. This week we're going to look at one of the simplest, freely available, yet least used browser technologies, the Reader View. Chrome versus Edge, let the battle commence! On screen one, I have Microsoft Edge, weighing in at the cost of zero pounds. On screen two, I have Google Chrome, also weighing in at the cost of zero pounds. Round one, opening reader view. On the Edge browser, the immersive reader feature is built in and can be activated by a button on the address bar, by typing read followed by a colon in front of a URL, and also you can simply press F9. Before you can open reader view in Chrome, you have to install it as an extension. It's free and not difficult. Once installed, you'll find it in extensions located to the right of the address bar. One point to Immersive Reader. Round two, features. Both come out fighting with the read aloud feature that allows the user to adjust the read speed, skip forward and back, and change the voice that is reading. They both also highlight the word being read. Chrome Reader has a volume control, which is a nice touch if not using headphones. One point, Chrome Reader. Round three, readability. A big feature for reader views is the ability to change the formatting to suit the user. Both allow easy changing of font size, font and text width on the screen. But they differ in background colour features. Here is where Immersive Reader offers quite a bit more. Chrome Reader offers eight background slash contrast colours, four light and four dark. Immersive Reader provides 23 background options, green, pink, yellow and blue included, allowing pupils with visual needs to find a comfortable colour. One point, Immersive Reader. Round four, editing. Chrome Reader features a design mode. This allows you to highlight text and make changes. Quite useful if wanting to pick out key points to return to. Immersive Reader does not have this feature. One point Chrome Reader. Round five, extra features. Immersive Reader has a grammar feature, allowing words to be split into syllables. You can highlight nouns, verbs, adjectives and adverbs by flicking switches. This feature is not offered on Chrome Reader. One point Immersive Reader. Immersive Reader also offers reading preferences, featuring line focus of five, three or one line, blocking out the rest of the page. There's a picture dictionary, allowing some words to change the pointer to a magic wand that reveals a picture depicting it. Also, there's a translation feature allowing partial or full translation of a page into 88 different languages at the click of a button. Chrome Reader does not offer these features, however, other free products such as Google Translate could be used. Immersive Reader takes the point because you don't need to leave the page. Final score! Winning with 4 points to 2 after a blistering final round is Microsoft Immersive Reader, but let's face it, most people don't know these things exist. If you were one of them, please do something about it. See if these features are installed in your school, and if not, request they are. For a visual version of this episode, check out the TT Radio 2021 Twitter feed. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Are you looking to take your phonics practice forward? Then Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised is the programme for you. Created by two schools with an excellent track record in phonics, Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised will help all children become readers and ensure no child is left behind. The programme offers complete support for your phonics teaching, alongside classroom resources and fully decodable readers from Collins Big Cat. To find out more, follow at Letters Sounds on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram or join a free briefing by visiting littlewondlelettersandsounds.org.uk.
Teachers Talk Radio is delighted to support Winston's Wish, the UK's childhood bereavement charity. Winston's Wish supports children and their families after the death of a parent or sibling. They provide emotional and practical bereavement support. Expert teams also provide online resources, specialist publications and training for professionals. Okie dokie, and for some reason I can't hear the sound of the advert, so I'll just um, resume with the show, if that's okay, Joe. Um, so in terms of um, what we've just spoken about, I've had who um, given us insightful wisdom in terms of middle leadership, and we're going to now explore how to manage change and deal with behavior Hugh did briefly talk about um consistency so i don't think we've got time to for me to pose that as a question because when he did speak about consistency he said that basically in an es- in essence it's best to have and stick to the core knowledge however um in terms of it being completely consistent it's really hard to achieve that so uh, maybe that could be a whole other topic on, on another day, but but Hugh did briefly talk about that. So, um, yeah, I'm going to pose... Hi, Hugh, it's nice to have you back. I'm going to now ask you um, the question in which everybody dreads as a middle leader, which is managing change. So how to introduce change and also how to manage that as time goes on. So managing change is, is as you say, a really tricky one because... It is often the one where there is a massive amount of, um, I don't know, it, it causes quite a lot of stress because you know where, where you want to go perhaps, but getting there seems like a very big task. And often I think middle leaders can end up doing a lot of the work themselves and not necessarily leading a group of people so much as doing it themselves and then handing it to that group of people. It can be quite tricky. I think, yeah. as I said a few times, kind of keeping it focused, choosing one or two things to work on, and not trying to change everything at once. Um, there's a lovely model um, from Lewin and Green that uh, Kat Priggs uses on the on the subject leader program I, I help with, um, and she talked. And that model talks about kind of unfreezing something, changing it, and refreezing it. And the idea there is that when you unfreeze something, you look at something you want to change, and you sort of lay the groundwork for changing it so yeah. you kind of look at it and you kind of find it maybe maybe it's a section of your curriculum say and you go you kind of get the buy-in of the team and go, look this isn't really that good is it let's try and do something about this and you kind of wow. prep that context to get people used to the idea that it is about to change you yeah. then unfreeze it and you put a load of changes in place and then you very consciously go right let's try that now let's freeze things up again with the new model the new whatever it is and then build it from there and, and then evaluate it a little bit. And if and if it needs to unfreeze and do it again, then but rather than just having kind of open-ended change, think, right, we're going to open this up, we're going to do these changes, we're going to close it up again. And that kind of process keeps things quite manageable, I think. It keeps things kind of chunked down, which is quite mm. important. I think you have to think carefully about the time it will take. We talked earlier in the show about the, the strategic side of time management. Um, you've got to plan this out a bit. 
I think it's important to narrate why you're doing things. You got to really yeah, talk about justify it. And if you can't justify it, does it need to be done? Is there something mm-hmm. else you should be working on? Um, and it's quite important not to be defensive on this. If if your if your team genuinely all think this is probably not the best use of time, then it's worth going back and thinking right. Do, can I justify it? If so, how? And I can narrate that why to them. But actually, if I can't, then I, what do I need to do next? And that's not to say that you should give ground on every single thing and you can kind of be persuaded yeah. out of everything. But there are times when you think, when if you can't genuinely explain why you're doing something, then it's probably worth not doing it. Um, mm. So I, as, I, as I said a, a, a previously, I always introduce a plan of what I want. So... I come to the meeting with a rough sketch out of what I want it to look like. And I then talk to my team and ask them to critique it. And they generally make some really sensible and helpful tweaks. And we kind of end up with about 80%-ish of what I originally wanted because, yeah. you know, they roughly see the sense of it or whatever. Sometimes that's right down at like 40% because – but those changes I've, I've adopted because actually they're sensible. But normally it's 80% yeah. plus. And then – I get the buy-in of my team at that stage, right? They understand the purpose of the change, why we're doing it, what we're going to do, how it all fits together. And that's really helpful. I then allocate and distribute tasks quite fairly. So if, if you've got different pressures on colleagues at different times of year, you know, mm. what timescales are we setting work, you know, any any that's implementation really work to be done over? Yeah. How far ahead can we plan? So the Empire and Slavery units I'm working on this year with my team, that we're not planning on having them ready until next year. So we're just like, you know yeah. what? We've taught Empire and Slavery in a particular way. We might make some on the hoof tweaks this year to the current teaching, as I have done. Um, but actually, you know, the full proper change will, will come into place next year to give us proper time yeah. to work on it. The other thing I think is really important is to give individuals meeting time to work on it. So if you've got wow. an hour-long meeting, you know, let's say you've got four hour-long meetings across a term. Yeah. In the first one, make the plan. In the second one, maybe have some collaborative conversations. And in the third yeah. and fourth, give them that time to crack on with it. Wow, I love that. And yeah. even if they don't get all of their contribution done in that time, you're at least meeting them halfway on the time demand. And, and also you're conferring an importance on that work. So you're saying that labour that you're doing, that intellectual process that you're, you're doing to help me plan that unit or to help me implement this particular change. Actually, that's really crucial to the success of the department. So, so actually, I'm going to give you some meeting time to do it. Right. We used to have a computer in the department that's since been converted into my, my normal classroom. But we used to sit in the same room and work on different stuff at the same time. And it was unbelievably productive. Wow. Because we could check in, in with each other and go, oh, have you got something on this? Have you got something on that? What about this? And then yeah. keep moving on with whatever project they were working on. But it feels like you're, you're valuing the work they're doing and it's not an afterthought or you're not just expecting them to make it up one evening after their kids are in bed or whatever it is. Yeah. Actually, you're going, you know what? This is a priority for the department. I'm going to give you some time to work on it. So once you've carved out all that time to work on CPD, you then have to be generous with it and give it over to those people. That will help with that buy-in. That will help with getting mm-hmm. the change happening. Right. And then just lots of conversations, formal meetings to evaluate how a change is, is happening, to little casual one-to-ones where actually going, how are you finding this now? Um, so as part of this work on the well-being group at school, we've, we've done a load of work on emails and reducing email traffic. And I've tried to just chat to people around the school as I've seen them going, well, have you, what about in your role? Have you received fewer emails recently? 
have you received fewer? Mm, and lots of them are saying yes, and then I've got some going on, but mostly I just get external. Like our careers advisor, um, he says, oh, most of my emails come from external providers anyway, so it doesn't make much difference to me. But other people have been like, it's yeah. been huge. So just those little check-ins to see how people are reacting to it, to gain some feedback on it. As, the, as things are unfrozen, just see how that's going before you refreeze stuff. Oh, and just keep that. doing that during and after the rollout. Yeah. And if it needs to be revisited, revisit it. But get buy-in at different stages. They can, you know, your team can help plan it with you. You can give them time while they while they implement it. You can check in with them informally, away from the major main group, and go. Actually, are you finding it all right? And they might tell you in that context. Let's say you've got a, 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 an early careers teacher, and everybody yeah. in the group is really enthusiastic about something. But then, they're like, oh my god, I don't think I can do this. You know, you catch them after a lesson or over a coffee at break time. How are you finding this new unit? And they're going, oh God, Hugh, it's a disaster. I can't teach it. I don't. I, is everybody else finding it easy? And I go, no, everyone's finding it a nightmare. <laughs> you know, <laughs> actually, it's it's not gone very well. And they go, oh, thank God, I thought it was only me. But they might never have voiced that in front of the whole group. Yeah, so yeah. keeping in touch with those individuals in your team as much as possible. And at middle leadership, that should be possible. Yeah. It's actually a really powerful tool to help that change land and, and see how it's going. Thank you so much, Hugh. Yeah, that's just, all of this is really insightful. And then my last question, hopefully if I do have more time, if not, you did kind of answer that question in terms of consistency. But my last question is, um, as middle leaders, how, especially um, academic middle leaders, how can we um, ensure that behaviour is great throughout, you know, even classrooms that we don't teach in? How can we monitor behaviour and essentially um, implement behavioral learning yeah now this is really hard and it, it yeah. and in different contexts it's harder than others for some subject leaders this isn't really something that registers because the the centralized systems are so so good that they barely have to come near it because you know they don't you know they're, they're just the, the pastoral system functions almost completely independently yeah um, and sometimes like at our place subject leaders are built into that that system I think we noticed last year when we were going around bubbles in the school, actually the, the lack of that subject leader layer was quite significant. Yeah. I, think, I think the first thing is to build up relationships of trust with your team. If you've got a new team member in there, then go in and, and listen, listen for times when the class is really, really good. Go in and praise them and, and you know, say, oh, well done, well done, so well done, miss. You know, oh, not necessarily in front of the kids. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's all right. Um, you know, hold on, so what a mess, or not necessarily in front of the kids, but actually, oh, I came into your lesson earlier, Scott, and it was great. Um, I really liked the atmosphere you had in there. And then when you're going into the room, then you can just like go around the room. And there is a, there is a thing where you don't want to necessarily pick up something that the teacher has missed. So, for example, can you take your coat off, please, is yeah. a problem because you are kind of the teacher at the front of the room will, will see that and go, oh, no, I forgot that oh, I'm in trouble now, I should have made sure that kid had his coat on. And that feels rubbish yeah. as a teacher when someone yeah. else comes in and does something that you just missed. Yeah, but, I agree. you know, actually, if you're just a presence around the department, you know, so you spend, you know, the middle 10 minutes of a free here and there, you get out and do a loop and just, hopefully the doors are open, they should be at the moment anyway, just cut, put an ear in, or just, I sometimes walk up to the outside of a door so the students can't see me, but I can see the teacher at the front of the room 
And I just give them a little nod or a thumbs up and they go, yeah, fine. And I crack on and leave, leave them to it. But they know they're supported there. So wow, if you build that. those supportive relationships, they know that when you come into the room to deal with any behavior issues, you're on their side. Mm. And fundamentally, you have to take their side. If yeah. you think that a teacher is misusing a behavior system and it's getting a bit too punitive or it's getting misused in a different way, then yeah, there's a training need. And yeah, you have to get them to come and observe other teachers who use it well. And Or if they're just you know, endlessly shouting at groups, you go, right, you know what? This isn't working. We need to retrain you. But mm. in the moment on the ground with the kids, you have to support your team fundamentally. If there's stuff you have to deconstruct later, fine. But yeah. you have to really support that teacher in front of the students. I think if you if the teacher if the teacher knows that that's what you're going to do, then you'll find that that's really helpful. I often find that, that actually <coughs> me being a head of department doesn't mean much to the kids. It's a kind yeah, of internal school staff structure. They're like, okay, so you're in charge of the history department. Why do I care in terms of behaviour? So I sometimes like have to narrate to them. Look, if this teacher has asked me to get involved, then that's a problem because that means you're disrespecting and ignoring that teacher's instructions or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, but fundamentally, you need to fit in as a subject leader, as a middle leader, you need to fit into the system that's been designed and you need to support your staff in using that system as well as possible. Um, mm. There are schools where it is pretty much, you know, departments have to figure out their own things and you can do things like having a removal rotor where everybody knows where, where to send a student to ask for support so I've got a year 12 lesson. I can go out and leave them for 10 minutes and go and help with the year seven group if there's some issues, whatever yeah. it is. Or I'm in the office that moment or my assistant subject leader's in the office. You know, whatever that is, you can have that removal rotor. You can design the detention systems within a department. There's lots of things you can do. But basically, you need to try and get some good behavior within the department. Something from the EEF guidance report on behavior I found quite interesting was that Students have to have different, have to have consistent behavior routines in a department, but they will have different behavior mm. routines between departments. And I first thought, wow. oh God, that doesn't work. But then I thought, no, wait a minute. If I'm a PE teacher and I blow a whistle, the kids need to know what they're doing. Are they congregating at a central place? Are they freezing? What's, what's the crack there? And that whistle signal needs to be nice and consistent across the teaching team. But it would be bizarre for me to blow a whistle in a classroom to get them to run mm. to the middle of the room. Right? Yeah, that's a really good point. Right? And actually, there might be signals in a science lab where they do have to freeze because there's a health and safety concern there. And if something's gone a bit wrong, then the students need to react correctly. Um, so whether that's just stop whatever you're doing and sit in your normal seat, you know, if something happens in a science lab where you need to care for an individual student, then I guess you need a routine for that. Mm. Um, there are times when or you know is there a signal in a music lab for everyone just to you know be quiet and stop playing whatever instruments they're playing take their headphones off how does that work and there is different behavior routines for different contexts dt labs you, dt workshops you're going to need a routine to keep things safe you're going to need yeah, you're going to need point. clearing up and packing away routines that are different but within yeah. my five history classrooms we can keep things nice and tidy nice and consistent right yeah so and they get used to that. Of course they do, you know. But it helps if you have consistency within departments. I've got no idea what that looks like at, at, at primary school. I assume the depth of relationship between a teacher and their class 
is the fundamental part of the behavior yeah, system. That's good but point. you will obviously have structures on top of that. But yeah, I, the, it never really occurred to me how different behavior like techniques and methods might well be. There might be some similarities. You're silent when the teacher's speaking. You are respectful to everybody who, you know, there are going to be some common ground. But yeah. but yeah, trying to get it across your department is all you can really do. And just making sure your department fits in with school systems, I guess. Mm, definitely agree. Thank you so much, Hugh. I didn't even know that there was a behaviour section in the... Um, uh, no, that's not the Ofsted guidance. You said the... Um, the EEF. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Guidance. I, I think... Say, yeah, no, that one. Yeah. There is a behaviour one. Um, oh. I'm just having a quick Google. Yes. Improving behaviour in schools is what it's called. Oh, okay. Um, Send back to me. I'll have a read of it. It arrived in June 2019, so things have been a bit mad since then. Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, getting something especially, consistent yeah. within departments was really interesting. Especially, um, what is it, the fact that, you know, COVID and online teaching, it's disrupted routines, schools. Yeah. So yeah, behaviour's been a bit of an issue, so that was a question that I really wanted um, yeah. oh, that um, guidance report is yeah. really really good I think it's worth looking at yeah. yeah I'll definitely have a look at that thank you so much um, thank you so much Hugh time flies when you're yeah. having fun so thank you so much um, those that are listening back to the live show please do um, tweet myself and tweet um, Hugh and let's keep this conversation going so Hugh would you be able to share your Twitter handle please so yeah, that others can get in contact with you. At Hugh J. Richards, H-U-G-H, um, Hugh J. Richards. So you heard that at Hugh J. Um, Richards. So please do follow Hugh if you haven't followed him already, but I'm sure everybody does. Um, but thank you so much. Um, and I think this is my last show for 2021. So see you all in 2020. Have a good one. Have a great Christmas. Bye, everyone. Thanks, Emily. Thanks, Hugh. Bye. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.